to the VCA Voice podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Marie Curl. Our goal with the VCA Voice is to showcase how VCA Animal Hospitals is taking care of the future of veterinary medicine. We'll bring our purpose to life through meaningful conversations about care, our culture, and the communities we serve. On today's episode, I'm happy to welcome Dr. Phil Padrid. Phil is a Senior Regional Medical Director for Specialty Hospitals in the Western Division. Hi, Phil. How are you today? Hi, Marie. I'm well. And yourself? Doing well. I'm very, very happy that you were able to join, and uh, I know that you're going to have a lot of great information to share. Why don't we jump in and get started? Sure. I believe that you started your career in human health care, but tell me about your transition to veterinary medicine and how did you get started? I was a graduate student in philosophy, and I realized at the time that wasn't going to get me anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I wound up going to nursing school in upstate New York. From there, I became a nurse practitioner, and I worked in critical care in the Moffitt Hospital in UC San Francisco for a couple of years. From that point, I realized I wanted to challenge myself more and I had a number of physicians in my family. It didn't seem to be the kind of lifestyle I was most interested in. And of course, as a veterinarian, we've always loved our dogs and our cats. And as I looked into the field, it seemed like a perfect position for me to be. I applied Mm -hmm. to vet school at Cornell and I was accepted. And that became my uh, veterinary career. So vet school at Cornell. And then what happened after vet school? When I finished Cornell, I went and did a private practice internship in Santa Cruz. And from there, I applied for and was accepted in a residency program in medicine at the University of California, Davis. As I was finishing my residency, and I was planning at the time on doing a mobile endoscopy and ultrasound service in Northern California, Mm -hmm. I was doing a residency project with someone who was working with the pulmonary department at the Davis Medical School. One thing led to another, and they offered me a fellowship. When they offered me a fellowship, I didn't know what a fellowship was. I had never heard of a fellowship. Okay. As I learned, I realized this was an enormous opportunity mm-hmm. to learn more about a specific field. I had grown more interested in pulmonary medicine over the course of my residency, and I joined the Davis faculty as a pulmonary fellow. Now, remember, I'm a veterinarian. Everyone else in the entire building was. You're among a bunch of MDs there, right? Exactly. And there's actually a funny story for that. Uh-huh. In the first year of my fellowship, we were in a hospital room, and the Fellows and the attendings were circling a patient's bed, and we all had our name tags on. And it just so happened that the patient was looking at each of us in turn. She started at the other end of the bed, and when she finally got to me and she saw Philip Adrid DBM, she said, you know, I know I'm on Medicare, but this is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> it really was fun. I finished my fellowship, and I was lucky enough to obtain a job as a junior faculty at the University of Chicago Medical School in Chicago. Okay. And I was there for 10 years. A major focus of my research turned out to be CAD as a model for human asthma because nobody else besides veterinarians know that that actually exists. Mm -hmm. And when the faculty at Chicago learned that I had an interest in that, they were developing an animal biology program. I became an assistant professor and was there for 10 years doing NIH-sponsored research. It turned out after 10 years, it had translated from pulmonary research to translational research in transplantation. And that's kind of the way research goes. You go where it takes you. And I woke up one day and I said, I really can't work with animals anymore as subjects Mm -hmm. of experiments. I just can't possibly. And I left the university and I joined VCA in 2000. 
So you were one of the early RMDs. I don't think you were in the very first group, but pretty early on. Yeah, I think there were two or three of us started around that time. The way I started in VCA was I was looking to get out of the university field, uh-huh. and I saw an advertisement. I applied, I was accepted, and it kind of worked out. So how was it having knowledge in human healthcare and human medicine and going to vet school? Did that knowledge help to support your education and career, or were there things that you had to learn differently? It's a wonderful question, and I knew enough basic medicine as a nurse practitioner in a critical care unit. I saw some pretty sick patients, and I was involved in about 200 CPR events over the course of my career. But veterinary medicine is not human medicine, and I didn't appreciate any of the differences, and I didn't appreciate my limitations. So it actually, for me, in the short term, was a hindrance. It took me about a year to get past my own arrogance, to be honest. Then when I calmed down and started to learn, it became helpful training down the road. So you started as a regional medical director in the Midwest area with VCA. Yes. And then you became a specialty regional medical director in the West. So how did that transition happen? You know, my career with VCA spans 23 years. So stuff happens over time. After a couple of years working in the Midwest, I had the opportunity to go back to Chicago as a private practitioner and buy into a practice. Okay. So I was a managing partner of a 10-doctor practice in Chicago, and I did that for about five years. Out of the blue, I get a call from Dr. Bob Doak, who was a group vice president for VCA. He was a fourth-year student when I was a resident, and he was on my service. <laughs> so we had known each other for a long time. We got along really mm-hmm. well. And he called me and said, would you be willing to come back to VCA? I have an opening in my region. I love Bob. And I thought, why don't my wife and I take a ride out to New Mexico that I'd never been in my life and see what that's like. And it turned out we fell in love with the community. We fell in love with the state and the city. And the opportunity to go back and be a veterinarian on a regional level was an important next step in my career. And I jumped at the chance. I assume you started working with both GP and specialty hospitals. How did those two differ? And then when did you make the switch to doing just specialty? You know, veterinarians are veterinarians, patients are patients, clients are clients. Excellent medicine is excellent medicine, especially hospitals, which is bigger. That's all there is to it. At the point where I was working with West LA, that's a 60-doctor hospital. That's 23-doctor private practices. So the enormity Mm -hmm. of getting people to work together and put pieces together that fit things you'd never consider in a general practice, and especially practice, you have to figure out who's going to sit next to who in an office. (laughs) Now, there's a real pleasure in knowing in especially hospital that people have been trained for a very long time, and the likelihood is that they're pretty good in their chosen field. So in specialty medicine, it's a little less about making sure that people are meeting standards of care. Mm-hmm. And a lot more about getting people to work together. That's an ideal that I think our specialty hospitals reach for. And if you're a regional person, you can add value in trying to make that happen. The jump to specialty medicine started in the southwest of Dr. Doak. There was a time some years back where the company was considering splitting into general practice and specialty. At that time, they were considering Dr. Doak to be the GVP for specialty. And he recommended that I be the RMD for specialty. Mm -hmm. The split, as you know, didn't occur. But the notion that I could work just with specialty hospitals was something that was attractive to me. 
and attractive to Dr. Doak. And over the next couple of years, it just morphed out that I was just working with specialty hospitals. Well, I know one of your passions is helping to train and support specialty medical leaders. And it's not an area in residency training that residents get a lot of that type of coaching and guidance. So what does it take to be able to coach and train and guide a specialty medical director or specialty medical leader or leaders in in a practice? How is that leadership best structured? The people who are overseeing the hospitals in a support or leadership structure have an enormous variation in what they do well and what they don't. They vary in how they look at the hospital and what the hospital needs and what their role in it is. So I think when you're working with a large number of specialty hospitals, the first thing that I think I would coach somebody is to recognize the diversity in skill set and view. Mm -hmm. If you can get past the idea that there's a rote checklist of 30 things that every medical director has to do, and start to appreciate what each individual medical director does really well, you can start to partner that skill set with their hospital administrator. If you can find a commonality between what the medical director does well and what the hospital manager does well, that's the partnership that really has synergy and really can show leadership within a hospital to make people even more motivated to do their best. You know, there's a checklist of things you want your medical director to do, tell the truth, mm-hmm do the right thing, lead by example, expectations or kindnesses, if you can get people to understand what you expect of them. The opportunity for growth and leadership in a specialty hospital with a large number of people is enormous. It's a real positive if you're interested in learning how to lead large groups. And that's probably the best thing I can tell you. I appreciate the differences and get the medical director and the hospital manager really in sync. So when you have a hospital that's as large as VCA West LA, I'm assuming there's more than just a single medical director. What does medical leadership look like to perhaps help guide those interested in getting their feet wet in leadership to take that step and, you know, and perhaps eventually become a medical director of that hospital or a different hospital? It's not so much knowing how to do it so much as being willing to learn how to do it. And in the case of West LA, we went to three medical directors. We enlarged the support staff and the office administration staff, and we had a lot of meetings. We did a lot of talking. We went off-site quite a bit. Every three months, we would all go off-site for a day and whiteboard Mm -hmm. where our hospital is, where it's going, what do we have, what do we need. And that's a common thing you do in business. I personally hadn't done that in the specialty hospitals I'd worked for. So doing the strategic planning allowed people to talk to each other outside of the hospital and get a slightly different perspective on what their thoughts are. Because when you spend a day in a room with someone, as you know, you get to learn a lot about them. And hopefully it's good stuff that you learn. So how does that focus on strategic planning and really developing the leaders in a large hospital, how does that transmit into hospital culture? Well, Marie, what a great question. I wish I'd known them what I know now. Um, You know, (laughs) We all do. I know. (laughs) I'm I'm in that same I'm in that same boat. You know, the cool thing about it is if you can get the majority of people to agree that excellence has to be practiced and needs to be practiced every day, you really feel that internally and you start to look out for each other. I played baseball in college, I played football in high school. Teamwork is teamwork. And if you know that someone else has your back, that's a cliche that makes perfect sense in the field of veterinary medicine. If you're having a bad day, someone will pick you up. Before you leave for the day, you ask other people. Do you need help? Mm-hmm. If once in a blue moon, a veterinarian cleans a sink, you know, it's that kind of stuff that makes a difference. 
and have people feel that they all represent the hospital and the company in the hospital and in their community. That's the goal, to get people to see that. Because specialty medicine, you can go about your way and see a lot of patients and generate a lot of income. But that's not the goal of leadership and especially hospital. It involves a lot of work to get to people to see what they want to do, what they think is important, and agree on some basic principles that we'll all work together on. I'm going to shift gears a little bit now. And since I've joined BCA and you and I have worked more closely together, I've really appreciated your focus on science and literature when we have questions of medical quality. And in fact, I think some of our commercial partners are sometimes a little intimidated by the questions that you come up with. Tell me a little bit about how you developed that ability. It it wasn't something I had to work at. Because remember, when I was doing a fellowship, I remember the first time I was told to write a grant to NIH. Mm -hmm. A grant for NIH, and I'm sure you know this, is 25 pages (laughs) single-spaced. In a million years, I couldn't imagine that was going to happen. But that's the process of education and fellowships. Over the course of time, you develop a pretty good understanding of your field. You learn how to focus. And somehow, magically, you get 25 pages that make sense, and they give you a lot of money to do research. That process was innate in me when I became a regional medical director. If someone presented data and they didn't have standard error bars, <laughs> I didn't even look at the data. You know, it's silly uh-huh. to save it that way, but you understand the notion to think critically about decisions that affect pets' health was something I would never think anything other than to do that. There would never be a time in my career. It's not that I don't believe you, but if I'm going to allow patients to be treated with this new thing, I need to be pretty comfortable that it makes sense. And for me, to make sense means you go back to the original literature, and you actually look and see what they demonstrated and what they didn't demonstrate. I have had the pleasure of representing a couple of companies in my life Mm -hmm. and different things related to pulmonary medicine. And they each knew when they were getting me, they were getting me after I looked at the data. And that was fine for them. And I accepted that as one of the responsibilities of an RMD for our company, that you really take seriously what you're allowing to go into a patient's body or how you talk to a client, that there's data behind it. So it actually was a pretty seamless transition from my fellowship. Well, and certainly that focus on research training. I think in veterinary medicine, we're handicapped somewhat by the literature compared to studies in human health care. But most veterinarians, but you know, really myself included, that ability to look critically at research and data and interpret that, it's either very difficult or is impossible for people because they haven't had that level of training to be able to do that. I can tell you, I think of this once in a while in terms of being able to read a radiograph. Mm -hmm. If you're trying to learn how to read a radiograph on your own and you're never mentored, you'll figure some stuff out. You make some good calls and you'll miss a lot of stuff because you don't know what you don't know. When you're trying to read the literature in veterinary medicine, there's only so much you can read and understand. But if you've been trained to look through it, just like now you can read a chest x-ray in 15 seconds when you're a vet student, it took you half an hour. Now I can read original research quickly enough that it doesn't demotivate me. Mm-hmm. I'm happy to do it, and I'm happy to find out what the truth is. So it was a training as much as anything else. How important is early career training for people coming into veterinary medicine? I mean, I know your path of internship and residency, and you know, I, I certainly know in my career, doing my internship after being in a general practice position was really career changing. So can you speak a little bit about that early career training and directions? When you see your physician, 
they've gone through internship, residency, and fellowship. Mm -hmm. That's a base. That's the minimum standard of care. In our profession, we have the opportunity to graduate and put out a shingle. And that's a good thing because lots of people have animals that can be taken care of. The more veterinarians are able to do it. The more you study, the more you learn, the more you learn, the better you are at your craft. And there's not an easier way to say that. The point of an internship for me is an enormous caseload with guidance. And I say that because I'm a learner that learns by doing rather than looking. Mm -hmm. I could see 50 diabetic ketoacidotic cats, or I could read about them. Mm -hmm. If I read about them, every single time I have to remember what the potassium goes up or down. Once I've taken care of 10, I don't have to look at my little cheat book anymore. Yeah. So it was really just a caseload as much as anything else. In a lot of internships, you don't get overwhelming mentorship. You get to see a lot of cases and you learn. So that was the biggest deal. Moving on to a residency for me made sense because you get to refine that information. You go from seeing everything every day for 365 days to focusing a little more into medicine, surgery, oncology, et cetera, and really becoming an, an expert in your craft. So for me, it was to become the best doctor I could be. That career path made sense. Also, I'm not very good at my hands, so I couldn't be a dentist <laughs> right out of vet school. I couldn't fix a bone right out of vet school. I wasn't very good at that I still stuff. can't. <laughs> so you couldn't give me a fracture here when I was right out of vet school. I, I couldn't do it. So for me, that made perfect sense. Um, and it, I do believe it really helped me become good at what I do. And I think we all want to be the best version of a doctor we can be. Can I share one thing with you, Marie? Yeah, of course. You work, and we all work closely with Dr. Hoyle. Mm -hmm. When I was an RMD in Chicago, he was the medical director of VCA Lakeshore as a general practitioner. I think up until this minute, he's the best doctor I've ever worked with. As a general practitioner, and this is going back 24 years ago, he mm -hmm. was doing fracture repair. He was doing ultrasound. He was doing complete dental suite stuff. He was brilliant at everything he touched. And I admire him to this day, and I tell him whenever I have a chance, and I'll call him out in a meeting whenever I can, that <laughs> you guys know why Hoyle is this guy in the office somewhere. Why Hoyle was one of the best general practitioners I've ever met. And that was coming right out of my own training into my first year of a regional medical director position. So I did not know that Lakeshore was his. That was my hospital when I was uh, a regional medical director in the field. But he is absolutely amazing. I appreciate that call out. And uh, he's so good and helpful with everything that we do. I couldn't agree more. You've also been a career-long contributor to educating veterinarians and technicians. And, you know, when I talk to you about it, I can tell you really love teaching. What is it about teaching that gives you rewards? I would say that the ability to help the profession with the largest audience I can. I'm happy just to talk. I think you know that. But the opportunity to make somebody better at what they do, or at least turn on a light. If I teach veterinarians how to approach a patient in emergency setting with respiratory distress, and I can get them to just appreciate what they're looking at, even if they figure out how to treat it, they got to look in the book, that's going to save a patient's life. It's the ability to take care of patients and make patient care better and strive towards excellence. I had the opportunity to learn quite a bit about pulmonary medicine, mm -hmm. and I love sharing that with any audience I can. For me, the intrinsic joy above and apart the obvious we want to take care of patients. I love translating crazy stuff into English. Mm -hmm. I love taking a language that nobody understands and translate into a language they understand has been a, a passion of mine since I was in my fellowship. God bless the physicians I work with. They're brilliant. And some are terrific at talking to patients. And some really weren't. <laughs> so learning from that and having the idea that when I speak to a client, 
it makes sense to them is one of the things I've always trained myself to be better at. And I can try to help future veterinarians with that as well. As many people listening to this know, you are actually nearing retirement, which is sad for us, and I'm very happy for you. We're going to miss having you as a regular contributor to the regional medical directors. So what's next for you, both personally and professionally? Well, I appreciate you saying that. Being with this company for 23 years has been a joy. I've made a work family that I adore. The growth of my own hospital, as you know, is going to go into a 35,000 square foot complex, about six months. Mm -hmm. So growing through the company, learning through the people that are really a whole lot smarter than me and a lot nicer than me has been a real advantage because I've been in touch with so many people that I can learn so much from. I'm also getting old and I'm healthy and my wife is healthy. (laughs) You look young. (laughs) (laughs) And my daughter just gave birth to our second grandchild and my son just got married. Oh, congratulations. That's great. There are always people that you go, God, he should have stopped when he had the chance. Well, I'm stopping on the chance. I feel good. My family feels good. We're in great shape. And um, there are different times and stages in your life when you make decisions. And now this is the right time for us. Mm-hmm. I am not concerned at all about being bored. I can teach a volunteer in the Albuquerque school system. I can play pickleball. I can be a referee in high school basketball games. I used to do that in a previous life. So I'm happy with the things going forward. And I will be happy to spend, of course, more time with my family. There's nothing better than that. I, I don't know any other words. When you see a grandchild being born and your own child being born and your own children growing up to be good people, nothing else beats that. So I have a chance to appreciate that now a little bit more. Oh, that's great. I'm very, very happy for you and happy for your family as well. I know that we're nearing the end of our time together now. Do you have any words of advice for mid-career veterinary specialists who might be wondering what's next in their professional journey? If you find what you love, do it. Don't worry about anything else, if it's possible. That's a cliche. Not everybody gets to do it. But if you find your passion, it's not working. I don't know any way better to say I could do bronchoscopies for the rest of my life and not get paid. I'd be perfectly happy. So when you find what you love, if you get really, really good at it and you get really proud of your skill set, they will find you. What did I become well-known for? Feline asthma. Mm-hmm. Outside of veterinary medicine, no one in the world has ever heard of that. But with that tiny little subsegment of the population, I've traveled the world. And so finding my passion, what I really enjoy, took me to places I never could have dreamed of been had I not gone that route. So finding what you love as a writer, you write what you know. Mm-hmm. As a veterinarian, practice what you love practicing. Well, Phil, thank you again for spending some time with me today and sharing your story. And uh, I have tremendously appreciated working with you and getting to know you better since I joined BCA. And uh, obviously, I knew your professional reputation long before that. But I really appreciated getting to know you as a person and a scientist and as a contributor. So thank you so much for all that you've done for us. And uh, good luck on your retirement. Well, thank you very much. We're off to the next adventure. Thank you so much for listening in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider subscribing. Don't forget to leave a review to let us know your thoughts and share the episode with friends. Follow VCA Animal Hospitals on social media at LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 
For more inspiring stories, visit our website at vcavoice.com. Thank you.